Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Sophie with my weekly podcast. And today we're talking about a really very interesting, very pervasive and broad topic that affects all of us at one point or another on some level. But before I do that, I want to tell you a little bit about me. My name is Dr. Charles Sophie. I am the medical director for the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services. I also have a private psychiatric practice for adults, children, families, and uh, treat a lot of families who think that there's one problem, but there's really about four others going on, and that's kind of what I do, come into your house and invade it, which is uh, really a very interesting process, but that's basically what I do. I really do what I can do to keep a family together. And I do a lot of that work through my work at the Department of Children and Family Services. Our child abuse hotline has a approximately 18,000 calls a month where we sift through to see which ones we're going to deal with, which ones we're going to ship out, and how we're going to deal with them. But overall, it's about keeping families together, keeping children safe so that they can be with their families who they love and want to be permanent with. I also do a lot of uh, television, been on the uh, HLN network a lot this week talking about the Whitney Houston death and the tragedies with that and prescription medication, addiction, and relapse and sobriety, really tough subjects, and it's very difficult to have lost such an icon to our world. But it really needs to be, again, unfortunately, a wake-up call for all of us to see that addiction is a true disease, it affects all of us, and that if we don't take a stand when we're in the presence of an addict who we see struggling, even though we don't wanna say anything, we need to step up because people will die. And hopefully we're getting that message and hopefully we're getting a message out to doctors who are prescribing medications that these meds are very serious, that they need to know who they're prescribing for, they need to examine their patients and be sure that these patients need medicines before we just write them. So again, today we're going to be talking a little bit about a subject that is near and dear to me because I treat a lot of it in various different formats and various different levels both from child, adolescent, families in general, everybody has touched by this disorder. So I want to ask you, do you know what it means to be depressed? And do you know that there are really some really, really great non-medical treatments for depression? Many people think, ah, if I'm depressed, I have to take medicine. No, not necessarily true. So today, stay tuned. We're going to talk to a couple different experts who are going to give us non-medicine treatments and talking about depression, because really, you gotta hear about some of these treatments. They're unbelievably great. They really get you better, and they do the job that needs to be done, and sometimes without ever having to go on medication. So stay tuned, and give me some callbacks. I gotta understand what you're thinking about, what you're talking about, and what you wanna know more about, and what your thoughts are about depression, and the treatments, and how to get treatment. one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. Every caller will receive a free signed copy of my book, Side by Side, the Mother-Daughter Conflict Resolution Book. And who doesn't need that if you're a mother or a daughter? So come on back, one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. We're talking about depression. When we're talking depression, I bet most people use that word and they don't even know what it means. And believe it or not, there's a technical clinical description and definition of it. And there is criteria that needs to be met. Just like with any medical disorder, there is criteria for a mental health or a psychiatric disorder that needs to be met. So for instance, 
in order to be diagnosed with diabetes or hypertension, you need to have certain criteria from the American Diabetes Association or the American Heart Association so that just because one time you may have a high blood sugar or a high blood pressure, you're not diagnosed. The same goes for any psychiatric disorder. You can't just have it once or you can't just seem to have it and then be diagnosed with it because it's not consistent, it's not good for treatment, and it really doesn't keep a practice parameter in place for doctors to be able to know what it is actually that they're treating. So depression does have its criteria, and that that, that criteria can be found anywhere on the internet if you kind of Google depression and you look up its uh, diagnostic criteria. But in general, it is what you think it is. It's just that it has to comprise a certain amount of symptoms from a mood issue to a sleep issue to an eating appetite issue, motivation issue, all of those kinds of things. And believe it or not, when somebody's depressed, that doesn't necessarily mean they don't have energy or they want to sleep a lot or they want to stay home and withdraw. Sometimes they're in the other extremes. And that's why there's specific criteria to set that standard. So a doctor knows when their patient is meeting that criteria, then they know what they're treating. But in general, depression is what you think it is. It is that issue of feeling down, blue, unhappy, whatever. And it is about not being able to really do the activities of your life, your daily living activities. They're called ADLs, activities of daily living, from sleeping to working to making your life productive to getting up and wanting to take a shower to wanting to socialize. And and there are a bunch of uh, pitfalls that you can easily fall into when you start to get depressed. And believe it or not, there is a transition from being okay to being depressed. When you're in that whole timeline, you don't have to be fully depressed and meet the criteria of a full depression. You can meet the criteria for a kind of minor depression, and we call that dysthymia, and that's a, another disorder that has criteria. But nonetheless, they all have criteria, and along the, the way, you're having a mood issue. You're isolating yourself, and there's a lot of pitfalls to fall into, and I wanted to talk to you about the six common traps that you can fall into when you're on your timeline and you think you're getting depressed or you're, you're having some dysthymic issues or you're just kind of reacting to maybe the loss of a family member or the divorce or some kind of major traumatic life experience or even many times just moving out of the home for teenagers who are off to college or whatever will trigger sometimes these mood issues and you want to take a look at these things so that they don't bring you into a pitfall of a full-out depression. There are about six of them that I found in, in the things that I treat. Number one was the social withdrawal. If you find yourself starting to pull back from the rest of the world or cutting back on your social interaction, really take a look at that because that is really something that has to really continue. So take a look at that and gradually keep yourself connected or get back to being connected to the social people and reach out to your friends because if you don't, that only isolates you more where you're only with yourself and your thoughts and your feelings and then you can't get out of that. And then that will lead you into a depression. Then the other pitfall, the next one, is that being left alone and not doing anything and cutting yourself off from society or from social connection, you then sit there, as I said, with your own thoughts and feelings. And it's almost like a constant whirl around where you think and you feel and you think and you feel and then you worry and then you think and you feel and you're stuck in this whole secular thing where you can't get out and that's called rumination and if you start to ruminate then you really start to believe this stuff and you start to panic and it just keeps getting layered on top of itself so you're thinking and you're feeling that makes you really anxious and you're worried and then you get out of the anxiety 
from that, you start to think and worry more, and it just keeps tumbling over on itself. And before you know it, you're crippled and you're paralyzed and you're not getting out of the house emotionally and you're slowing down. So take a look at that. The third one is your eating. If you're not really eating or you're starting to overeat or you're starting to notice that you're grabbing onto food and you don't even know why you're doing it, it's because you're doing it from an emotional place and usually it's an anxiety-based behavior that is gonna trigger itself into some kind of mood issue. The other pitfall is the activity level of really doing exercise or getting out and doing the kinds of physical things that you typically would do, whether that's walking at lunchtime with your friends or walking the dog at night or getting up to exercise or whatever that physical piece of your life is. And you start to see that you're making excuses to get away from that. That's another issue that you have to take a look at because that's getting you on the timeline of moving towards some kind of mood issue to shut down. The next one is your sleep. You've got to look at your sleep. If sleep has been okay for you, where you're falling asleep okay and you're staying asleep, because remember, both of those components need to be in place for sleep to be intact and to be really good quality sleep. You need to be able to fall asleep in a timely way and you need to be able to stay asleep throughout the night so that you wake up fully rested. Because if you're not waking up rested and feeling like, wow, I could go on with my day now, and, you know, I'm, I'm not talking that you don't wake up and you're jumping out of bed and you're all perky and happy. I'm talking that, yes, you do drag yourself out of bed sometimes, but by the time you get to the bathroom to brush your teeth, you're ready to go with your day. I'm not talking that. I'm talking where you can't even get yourself to brush your teeth or get out of bed and, that's gonna, and that happens all day or every day and you can't get out and by lunchtime you're still not out of bed. That's the kind of sleep issue I'm looking at. So quality and quantity of sleep and really falling asleep and staying asleep. And then the other one is your ability to concentrate. Because if you cannot concentrate, you're not going to be able to get your job done. You're going to feel bad. Or you're not going to be able to grocery shop effectively and feed your children that you're going to feel bad. And that's going to lead you into other problems. So really take a look at your ability to stay focused and be able to concentrate and get your tasks done for the day. There are many people who are falling and slipping into a dysthymia or a full-on depression and it's because oftentimes they're ruminating all day, they're by themselves, they haven't slept, they forget to eat or they're overeating, and they are not being physical, and then they're sitting there and they are just unable to concentrate and feel productive through their day, and the whole thing starts to cascade. So that's the kind of stuff that we're looking at that we wanna educate you to, open your eyes to, so that you're able to see if anything of these issues are happening for you and what to do about them. And also, if you know of other people who may be doing this to themselves and not aware of it, connecting them to this so that they're able to really understand what's going on and reach out for help. Because that's what we're all about here today, talking about the help and the ways to fix this kind of stuff. And no, it's not necessarily only medication that is going to fix your brain to make it work better. Because we all know from a lot of research that depression really oftentimes is a shift of the chemicals in your brain. And that shifting from one place to another, usually inside the cells to outside the cells, that movement and that shift because of stress, it's shifting, gives you that anxiety shift and level change and then your mood change. So that's why medicines often work sometimes because they take those chemicals that have been moved and put them back into the places that they need to be. And when they do that, they change your mood back to what it should be and they change your anxiety levels and lower them. But we don't always want to rely on medication to be able to do that because sometimes you can train your brain to do the things that it needs to do. And that's what we're going to be talking about today with our experts, Dr. Judy Ho, 
who's going to talk about DVT, and our other expert, Dr. Lisa Bolden, who's going to talk about CBT, both non-medicine focused treatments for depression that I use a lot, especially in children and especially in traumatic victims who have been uh, in the middle of some kind of trauma, whether it's a war zone or it's a domestic violence issue or it is a um, some kind of physical beating, whatever it is that's traumatic to somebody and they have an aftermath of depression and mood and anxiety and sleep issues, many times non-medicine things work really well. So we're going to be talking about those today, one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. Give me a call. I think we'll go to the phones now. We have our expert, Dr. Judy Hoan, who is a DBT expert, and she's going to explain to us what DBT means. Dr. Ho is a clinical specialist in treating depression, anxiety disorders, child and family interventions, culturally responsive treatments, which is really key because if we can't speak the language of the people that we're treating and understand their cultural foundations, we're never going to be effective. So I think that's a really great thing. I want to talk to her about that. And she's also a professor at Pepperdine University Graduate School of Education Psychology. She uh, currently serves as the consulting neuropsychologist at Bridges to Recovery. It's a great inpatient uh, center. She'll tell us a little bit about that. It's a residential treatment center for adults. And I'm just really excited to have her on the phone with me today. Dr. Ho, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for having me, Dr. Selfie. Thank you. It's really a very, very big honor for me to have you because I think a lot of the work that you do and the places that you've worked I've used before, and I think they're really great places. So thank you. Thank you. Tell my listeners about DBT. So DBT is a very interesting type of therapy. It's actually um, originally developed by Dr. Marsha Linehan, uh, to treat people with borderline personality disorder. And DBT has a lot of roots in common with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so there's a lot of techniques in there that will sound familiar to people who are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy or people who you know have heard something about how cognitive behavioral therapy works because it's really kind of like a parent therapy of DBT. And the reason why DBT works so well is because it's really targeted at focusing on how to regulate one's own emotions and how to deal with concepts of distress tolerance, acceptance, and mindful awareness. So it kind of combines both Western and Eastern philosophies in terms of the development of the intervention. Ah, so what do you say to people when they're like, well, don't I need my medicine? I think that's a question you get all the time, you know, when you start to see patients and they want right. to know, you know, what is the benefits of behavioral therapy versus pharmacology. Right. And I think it's a, it's a very personal question. Some people are just not comfortable with medication. I think that's one of the reasons why they're in therapy. And another reason for um, getting behavioral therapy is that the medication, I explain to my patients, works sometimes more like a Band-Aid or like Tylenol. So... For as long as you're taking them, they will control the symptoms and, and make things a little manageable, but medication doesn't teach you coping skills to actually deal with the issues. And that's what they come to dialectical behavior therapy for, is to learn the coping skills so that eventually if they decide to go off of medication, then they'll have everything in place to be able to function. Right. And I think that's so key here for anybody who's suffering from 
depression or dysthymia, which I explained a little earlier was a kind of a mini depression, anxiety. We need those tools that don't come in a bottle because I think there's a false sense of security oftentimes that, you know, medicine is going to work and that's going to be the key, especially for children. I treat a lot of children and the last thing you want to do is give them the message that, oh, you're in distress, take this pill, it's over with. They need life skills and I think DBT is part of that toolbox. What do you think? Absolutely. I really agree with you, especially for children. I treat a lot of children and adolescents, too. And, you know, I, I think it's really important for that population, especially to explore these life skills. And I think a lot of the parents are more comfortable with that idea, too. I think so, too. Tell us a little bit about the basics of DBT. So somebody walks into your office and they, they know what to expect. And because it's a little scary, they don't know if it's some <laughs> hocus pocus or whatever. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Like, what is DBT? Well, all DBT usually consists of four different modules. And originally developed by Dr. Linehan, it had these four modules. And then, of course, as it's developed, you know, people kind of modify a little bit. But the general components are mindfulness, distress tolerance, uh, emotion regulation, and then finally, interpersonal effectiveness. And so all the skills can kind of go into four categories. Um, with mindfulness, you know, what you're really working on is bringing awareness to basically the present moment. And it's actually a technique that puts less emphasis on self-evaluation and more emphasis on what you're currently experiencing in the environment. And that sounds like a very subtle difference, but a lot of that self-evaluation is really harmful to people with depression because their self-evaluation right. always tends to be negative. Exactly, and exactly. Yeah, so, so mindfulness actually brings them out of sort of their head how? and make them pay more attention to the environment. And how? Yeah, give me an example. Um, yeah, um, one of the uh, exercises that I have uh, my patients do, one of the first ones, is mindful eating. And there's several different types of scripts you can use for something like that. So there's like a little bit of an instruction manual, right. so to speak. And they're usually like less than a page, and it just tells you to take a fruit, like one piece of fruit or an almond. So something very, just one singular piece of fruit food, and then to really experience it with all of your senses and Mm -hmm. even narrating to yourself what you're seeing and feeling. So you might pick up a grape and say, this grape is round, it smells good, it's purple, um, there's no seeds, it looks delicious, and then, you know, after they go through this process, then they, they eat the grape. And then they experience that grape as if they're eating it for the first time. Right. And it's a very minor sort of activity because you can do it in like one to two minutes. But, but it's meaningful. It's sort of that concept. It's so meaningful. Absolutely. Because people just, you know, they go through life and they're on autopilot. Right. And, and this they're... mindfulness brings them back in. Absolutely. But people are going to say, well, what does that do for my depression? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah. And I think when we, when we talk to, to clients about what's going to be helpful for them, we say, well... This is one concept that's going to start to help you to de-evaluate sort of what's in your head and more experience the present and, you know, not get caught up in the past and your past mistakes and not get caught up in, you know, future and worrying about what's going to happen. You're really just going to focus on right now because that's all anybody has is this moment. So the bottom line is mindfulness brings you to your present surroundings and connects you so that you're living your life day to day, minute to minute, and really experiencing your life instead of running through it emotionally and physically. Yes, that's a great summary. That's exactly what mindfulness does. Okay. So what does the next one do? Stress tolerance. Yes, the stress tolerance is a great one. I think, you know, eventually 
it started to come into these other disorders, how to work with DDT, because, you know, the stress tolerance is so crucial and such a problem for a lot of people who are experiencing yeah, a variety of absolutely. disorders. But in the beginning, you know, they were thinking about it for borderline personality disorders because they felt like this was a skill that these borderline personality disordered individuals lack. Mm-hmm. And then you start to find out, well, you know what, stress tolerance is really a huge explanation of why some people are depressed. Right. Um, and it actually goes along with the CBT model because with CBT, it's really like, talking about the fact that these stressors that these individuals have is not necessarily the cause of their depression. It's how they interpret it. Exactly. So, yeah, so two people can, you know, both be laid off and one person will seem to have a little bit better outlook and be able to go out and look for a job and continue to function and somebody else will kind of go to pieces. Right. And so the missing link there is that distress tolerance. One person is a little better at it than the other. And the good news is that teachable. You know, it's a skill. It's not something that you can't learn. And so that's really important to let clients know that this is something you can build on even if you don't have it right now. And so what the stress tolerance does is focuses on really thinking about accepting your current situation and finding meaning for and tolerating distress. So that part of it is a little bit different from the cognitive behavioral model, because I think sometimes the cognitive behavioral model will focus a lot on, well, you're having a maladaptive thought or you're having, you know, a a mistaken belief, you know, and the way that they actually conceptualize, you know, how somebody interprets these, these events is a little bit, negative in that it's a little judgmental and that's been a crit- criticism of right. DBT. Right. And so so the way that DBT really um, sort of conceptualizes it is that it's more of like an acceptance and finding meaning for and, and why this distress is happening and like just being able to tolerate it without judging it. And I think that that's actually something very special about DBT. And so there's a couple of skills that you would work on um, in this way. The stress tolerance skills really deal with having the ability to accept yourself right. and the current situation. And so it's about taking a non-judgmental stance towards yourself, um, not one of approval or resignation in any way. And in that way, it actually kind of extends into um, humanistic and Rogerian ideas right. of that sort of right, right, universal right. acceptance. Right, which is very key, don't you think? I think it's great. I love it. Yeah, I think it's very key for these individuals to learn that they don't have to judge themselves and put a negative spin on what's happening. Right, because they only feel safe in that negative spin, and it's getting them to feel safe in the positive space. Exactly, and that's really a hard switch for them to make. And Yeah, and the older they are, the harder it is. So I think the earlier you get somebody and you're able to kind of formulate their brain back into thinking in these ways, the more productive their outcome and the, the happier their life is. Yes, absolutely. What else? So then we have emotion regulation, yes. and emotion regulation is the third module, and it's related to distress tolerance, but it's actually very um, much targeting just the emotional aspects of somebody's depression. So, and so it's really about the emotion expression and learning how to label your emotions and to identify them. Right. And then, but then, you know, also identifying your obstacles to changing your emotions. I think something that you just said earlier was great about how they feel very comfortable and safe in the negative space because it's all that they know. Right. And they don't really know what it's like to be in a positive space. They're afraid. And so, in the motion regulation really does work on that aspect. You know, it reduces vulnerability to what we call emotion mind and dialectical behavior therapy. And so, you know, one of the key techniques we teach them is this idea called wise mind. And wise mind is sort of the 
perfect intersection of your emotion mind and your reasonable mind. Uh. And so your reasonable mind is sort of like when you write a check or, you know, when you balance your checkbook and that type of thing. And then the emotion mind is, you know, when you don't really give regard to consequences and, you know, you kind of erupt in a tantrum. And so the wise mind is really the perfect balance of those two. It's like when you incorporate the information from your emotion mind and your reasonable mind. And so in that conceptualization, you're not saying that being in your emotion mind is necessarily bad. It's just that you don't want to be in it completely right. without regard to yeah. something else. You don't want to live it's in there 20... Like yeah, you don't want to be there 24-7. Exactly. And see, not you see the non-judgmental, you know, sort of conceptualization of that, that that's still incorporated, you know, Wise mind includes emotion mind. But see, I'm a firm believer that the only place for medicine in that is if you needed, like you came to me and said, you know, can you help my patient take some medicine to lower their emotional responses till they get more comfortable to regulate it themselves and stay within the wise frame mind. Yeah, mind frame. that sounds great. Yeah, I love that conceptualization, especially when taking into account the medication. Yeah, but. the medicine is my big thing because the side effects and all of that stuff and the message that it sends that we got to stay on it and that's the only fix is just it just drives me crazy and I, that's why I'm, I want people like you to be out there telling and educating people to these kinds of treatments they're they're cost effective they're effective in general and the outcomes for people and the life skills they learn from this stuff is unbelievable and you know if you need a medicine to lower your emotional response till you can teach my patient how to like handle themselves I'm happy to do that but I think the key is what you're teaching them that's great. Yeah, thank you. I think, you know, it's it's definitely a great alternative for people, you know, who don't want to take medication or, or really want to learn their life skills so right. they don't have to be on medication exactly. for the rest of their life. And what's interpersonal effectiveness? So interpersonal effectiveness is a great one. It's my favorite one, actually, when working with depressed clients. Why? Because, you know, in one way or another, depressed clients can very much socially alienate themselves. And part of it is sort of the, the direct symptoms of the depression. You know, they, um, you know, if you've known anybody who has been depressed, it's actually really hard sometimes to get along with them because, you know, they might break promises or not show up. And, but that's really part of their depression. And I think sometimes friends get frustrated, family members get frustrated, yep. and then they stop calling the person. They stop reaching out to them. Right. So, you know, that, that's one aspect of it. But also the depressed individuals tend to disclose too much negative information when they're talking to people. So right. if they're hanging out with their friends, you know, they might just start disclosing all kinds of stuff that's, you know, really upsetting to other people. And they <laughs> might even do it in a context where there's strangers around, they're talking about it. And so it actually alienates them even more. So, that's and so that, the interpersonal effectiveness is huge. Is that that TMI thing, like too much information? Absolutely. Yeah. That TMI thing is getting them into mm. trouble. It's making them more alienated. Right. People are running from them. Absolutely. And then that, of course, you know, <laughs> activates the cognitive cycle within themselves. Like, okay, see, I knew I was unlovable. And then, you know, then they like actually have the sort so, of, yeah. you know, what's happening in the environment reinforcing that. Yeah, it's a self-sabotage, huh? Absolutely. Such a self-sabotage. And so the interpersonal effectiveness module is a really important one. And, you know, we teach them how to be assertive and how to problem solve interpersonally. And also just including um, learning effective strategies about how to ask for what you need, how to yep. say no, how to cope with conflict, ah. um, and doing so in a positive way. And um, it's really nice because it focuses on situations where the objective is to change something or to resist changes someone else is trying to make. And so what it's really intended to do is that this module tries to maximize the chances that a person's goals in a specific situation will be met. It doesn't guarantee ah. it, but it basically increases your chances and maximizes them. So, so. you're teaching these basic four modules in mm -hmm. 
your first kind of setup in DBT when you see somebody, or that's a process that you do one each time? Yeah, so, you know, I give them an overview, um, just like we've been sort of talking about here, of the four modules and how DBT was developed. And I review some basic information about its effectiveness, just so that clients know that it's, an, it's, a, it's a treatment that works. And I give them a little preview to the four models and, and just try to give them some justification of why we're working on that. And then we tackle each model individually. So we might spend four to eight sessions on mindfulness and then four to eight sessions on the second, third, and fourth module. So I would say that in general, my DPT programs go anywhere from 16 sessions, about four months if they come in weekly, to about eight months. And it is a time-limited therapy because it's structured, right. um, and we're not meant to keep them in therapy forever. And something that I try to tell them constantly to keep them to hang in there is that really the goal of DBT is to teach them a set of tools so that they kind of have a toolkit. Right. And every tool that I teach them, they're not going to love, but then some they will love and some they won't. But then at the end, they'll have a personalized toolkit of things that work for them to get them out of that depressive cycle. That's so great. I really i am so happy that you're doing this because people really do need these tools and I think that's very effective. Have you seen it working really well with your patients and, and in general? I have. You know, I think something that's interesting about DBT is that it does involve some level of personal motivation and it's a good and a bad thing about that therapy because you know, the, the great thing is that the more motivated the individual is, the more benefits they're going to get from it. Right. But the problem is some individuals are not going to be very motivated, yeah, so especially depressed clients. Right. So what do you do um, you know, then? Just, like, huh? What would you do in that case? Well, I think, you know, we try to explore the reasons behind sort of the barriers that we're experiencing. And I try to spend at least one part of every session talking about this with the client and explore, like, why there's resistance and, you know, what are the barriers that are in the way and how can I help them through it. And I think that if you spend time on it regularly talking about these issues. You know, you tend to get better treatment retention and participation right. because it's all out in the open and clients feel like you really are trying to understand, you know, why it's hard for them versus just, why didn't you do your homework this week? You yeah, know, exactly. um, it's not judgmental. It's more just, let me see how I can help you. And if you don't feel like DBT is right for you, let's talk about that. Maybe there's another type of treatment that we should be using. And so I really do try to be collaborative with the client because that is another key element of DBT. DBT is that it's extremely collaborative and, you know, it's not really like there's a power differential yeah. between, you know, the therapist and right. the patient. So and I try I, to model that. And I think it's important in, in treatment nowadays in general, not with just DBT or CBT or anything. Right. The traditional ways that people think therapy needs to be done just doesn't work oftentimes for people. And you do need to kind of get yourself into a collaborative space with a patient to build some trust and to build some kind of connection so that they do hear what it is clinically you need to show them, teach them, or have them resonate. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. I think that that's really the new model for building rapport now is the collaborative nature of right. that relationship. Yeah, I mean, the couch so, and the whole deal isn't Yeah, yeah. I know they still do that sometimes in movies and TV right. shows, but no, that's right. not really what we do anymore. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I have seen it work really well, though, to return to your question. You know, people really kind of you know, grab onto it. And I think something that's so helpful is that, you know, there is that homework component of DBT where they're supposed to go and practice these skills um, in their real life, you know, between right. seeing you for sessions. And then I think they actually get, you know, real, you know, real world 
evidence that it's working, mm-hmm. and then that kind of success kind of begets success. Yep. So the more they do it, the more they see, wow, it's working, and my relationship is changing with my wife, and you know, I'm doing better at work, and this thing happened. Instead of breaking down, I used my distress tolerance skills, and I was able to get myself out of it, and then, you know, they really get excited about it. And then they have this whole folder of all these activities they've been doing. And I think all of that is really nice, you know, having that tangible evidence. Wow, this is all of the things that I've learned and done. And, you know, I think it can be really appealing. Yeah, it's a good incentive for them. Once they start to really feel it, they really want to run with it then. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, trying to get them to complete those assignments is a really key aspect of that. And I try to tell them, you know, I see you for one hour right. of the whole week and right. you live with yourself all that rest of that time and so it wouldn't make sense for you to come to therapy for one hour a week and expect it to really change your life right. and you really work. have to do this on your own too and so you know i try to give that education right away so that they kind of know what to expect very good so really dbt to work has to be a commitment on both your level and the patient's level absolutely there has to be mutual commitment very good how about we take a voicemail from a listener Hi, Dr. Sophie. This is Jerry, and I have a question about today's topic of depression. What's the difference between depression and fatigue, and how do you know when you need to be treating something as opposed to the fact that you're just kind of tired and and dragging? There you go, Doctor. You take it. Great. That's a really good question. It is, um, because I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like, am I depressed, or am I just blue, or am I just sad or you know i just had a bad happening in my life a death a job loss or whatever people don't know people don't know and i think there's so many complicating factors because there are medical conditions that could cause that kind of fatigue and even a depressed mood you know one thing i'm thinking about is hypothyroidism right a lot of individuals who have that and you know that is a medical condition that does misdiagnosis a lot because it's not really in the sort of um set of batteries that they test for when you just get a physical exam for work or something like that. Right. And so I think, you know, in some situations it is medical. And so maybe the first step is just to rule out the medical causes by going to see your physician. But the question of fatigue is interesting because we have chronic fatigue syndrome, which is sort of like a mood disorder. And then we also have the fatigue that accompanies individuals who experience depression and more some people experience that more than others. You know, there are cultural roots to some of that too. Like there are some cultures who express their symptoms quite somatically. And the ones I'm thinking about the most are the Latino population and the Asian populations. You know, when they're depressed, um, their manifestation of the symptoms is very different than what we see in the DSM. And so it's, it's a really good question from this listener. And I would say, you know, the first step is go and see if you need to rule out anything medically. And then I think, you know, it's just really a, you know, a matter of seeing how the impairment is affecting Yes. Your, your general life, yes, you know, yes, like yes. what types of impairments are there, you right. know, ask people in your life, you know, to give you feedback. And I think you could start to discern whether or not it's a mood disorder versus just a fatigue problem that you need to start to right. learn to build by like better exercise or better eating habits and see if th- those things change anything. But yeah, it's a complicated question, a really good one. Yeah, I think it's very important, as you said, to really make sure that you're medically cleared, go to your doc, make sure you don't have a medical problem, diabetes, high blood pressure, hyperthyroidism, whatever. And then after that, if you really don't know where to go or your doctor you know, hasn't recommended anything, take a look at your life a little bit from a sleep perspective, an eating perspective, you know, your happiness in general, and go from there and, and always reach out for, for treatment. And 
DBT is a really great treatment option. There are many different ways, but I think, you know, we need to have an assessment first and you go to people like Dr. Ho and you get an assessment because you see people before they even need DBT, don't you? You you assess people and you do other kinds of treatment as well. Yeah, absolutely. I do a lot of neuropsychological assessments and there is actually some tests that will really screen out individuals who are having problems with, you know, their cognitive tests on these tests because they're depressed versus like they're having problems because there's an actual medical impairment there. And so we do have the um, ability to do some of that screening through a neuropsychological exam. Great. So people should not be afraid to reach out if they're in question. They don't know if they're depressed. They don't know if they're just blue and their life just isn't kind of connecting for them. There's nothing wrong with reaching out medically cleared and finding out what's going on with you. Do you have a thinking problem, a mood problem, anxiety? And there is help out there, and I think DBT is a great option. Absolutely. Thank you very much. How do we find you? Um, You can find me at drjudyho.com, and you can also email me at drjudyho at gmail.com, and all of my information is on the website address. It tells you a little bit about my background, what I do, what services I provide, and um, I also have a little section of um, different articles that I've written and interviews that I've done talking about the various types of treatments that I do. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. That's Dr. Judy Ho, www.drjudyho.com. Give her a buzz, look her up. She's got some great information, and she could really help. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Wow, that was interesting. On the phone, we had Dr. Judy Ho, DBT expert. That is a treatment for depression, mood, anxiety that really retrains your brain the way you think. She talked about the four different modules she teaches and how long it takes. And it was really very interesting stuff to be able to look at alternate ways to treat depression without medicine necessarily or in conjunction with medication, but definitely getting yourself examined and medically cleared first to make sure that what you're experiencing is not some medical issue that will then get missed because it's looked at as a depression. And those kinds of things can be anything from thyroid disease to blood pressure issues to blood sugar problems to all kinds of things I've seen and I've treated and ruled it out. So do not be afraid. Go to your doctor. Ask for help. We can help you. All right. Again, Dr. Sophie, one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. Every caller gets a free signed copy of my book, Side by Side, the Mother-Daughter Conflict Resolution book. We're talking about depression and the non-medical treatments per se that will help you through and also how to reach for help. On the phone with me now is Dr. Lisa Bolden. She's a cognitive behavioral therapist who works at uh, Harbor UCLA, where I just was yesterday lecturing. And she's trained in CBT. She's a uh, 17 years of experience counseling individuals, couples, families, groups, conducts group therapy. She's going to tell us all the kinds of things she does. She's also a psychologist with the L.A. County Department of Mental Health, which is where I used to work until I hopped over to another department. They do great work. They do a lot of work down at Harbor, and she's going to tell us all about it. Dr. Bolden. Hi, Dr. Sophie. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Um, I'm so grateful to be on um, your radio broadcast this morning. Um, Yes, actually, I'm really grateful uh, for this opportunity to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. I've been working um, with clients and have found it to be a very, very effective treatment for a short term for a variety of um, disorders, and I'm really um, grateful to have this opportunity to talk to your callers about this. Thank you. So, I mean, like, I don't think that 
medicine is really the only answer for depression. I don't even think sometimes it is the answer. You know, I look at therapies like DBT, CBT, EMDR, those kinds of things, and I, I tell my listeners a little bit about what actually is CBT, because a little, t- you know, oftentimes I'm sure it sounds scary to people because it is new. It's not the typical, oh, I take a pill and I feel better thing. So tell us a little bit about it. What is it? What is it? How do you start it? How, do, Absolutely, how long does it take Sophie. to work? Sure. What it is, is um, cognitive beha- CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And what it is, it's a short-term, very focused psychotherapy that um, basically is, it teaches people how to modify unhelpful thinking habits and to change behaviors that negatively impact their mood and their lives. Okay. So how does that differ from DBT? Well, how it differs from DBT, DBT is actually dialectical behavior therapy is a behavioral therapy, and it really focuses on working with people who are chronically suicidal or have self-harm behaviors. And so it focuses a lot on the behaviors and the impulses and, and really examining those behaviors. And what CBT does, it focuses on thoughts. Ah. And so what we do is thoughts are really automatic messages that come from our brain. And so what cognitive behavioral therapy does is focus on how we interpret those events. Ah, so one is behavior-focused, the other is thought-focused. Absolutely. And how do you pick? I mean, how does somebody know, well, I'm going to go get CBT or I'm going to go get DBT? How would somebody know to do that? Well, CBT really helps with depression, anxiety. Um, It helps with uh, eating disorders. It can help with marital problems. It's used a lot with teenagers and post-traumatic stress. Whereas, you know, just kind of basic depression, uh, DBT is used for more chronic um, suicidal thoughts, impulsive-type behaviors, and anger. Although CBT is used with substance use disorders, and, but DBT is a very, it's used for, for folks that uh, tend to get hospitalized or have had a lot of suicide attempts. So do you have to be sicker for DBT? Is that what you're saying? Well, I w- wouldn't say sicker, but just having more challenges with, with doing life and okay. having a life worth living. So and, CBT mm-hmm. is a great starting place. Yes, DBT is ab- absolutely, CBT is a great start. And so, we find that clients will start CBT, and then after a while we'll, we'll not find any improvement, and then um, we'll be referred to DBT. Got it. So tell me, we walk into your office, take one of my listeners through, they make an appointment with you, they go in, and what does CBT kind of look like? Well, what CBT does is we uh, do an, uh, an assessment. We, we focus on basically the present, the here and now. So we get a little background information, but unlike other therapies, we don't go into a, a really extensive um, background history, and we focus on problems that they're having right now. Okay, but then they're going to say, but I still, when I see my mother, I still get keyed up and I want to, like, strangle her. Absolutely. So what we do is we look at, well, what are the thoughts on how they interpret the interaction with with their mother? And what are some things that are unhelpful about those thoughts that are causing them to either feel depressed or anxious or angry? Okay, so I hear her voice and she like, it just gets me going. Absolutely. So we would say, well, what, what's the worst thing about her voice that causes you anger? And so we would really kind of put that thought, the thoughts that are automatically generated from our brain, and um, we would put those thoughts on trial. Okay, then, look they at say, evidence, then they know? say to you, well, it reminds me of when I was a kid and she was screaming all the time at me and it didn't feel like she cared about me. Absolutely. And so we would look at what are the kind of the core beliefs in terms of, well, how does that affect you now? How do you want to interact with her? What's your sort of desired way of act, interacting with her? Well, you know, I want to, I want a mom. I want somebody who cares about me. 
And I don't think she does, and I want it now, too. I mean, who doesn't want their parent to like them? Absolutely. And so what we would do is we'd look at, well, what would be the worst thing if you weren't able to have that kind of relationship with your mom? What are the thoughts that you have about that? And if you can't have that kind of relationship with your mom, would you be okay? And so we would kind of analyze that thought and say, absolutely, and validate it. But then also realize that somehow holding on to that thought is causing the anxiety and the anger. Okay. And, and they say, I get it. And I, how do I let, actually, how do I let go of this thought? How do I move into a different mind thought about my mom? So what we do is we look at the actual like, sentence or thought that's causing the most anxiety or anger or distress. And okay. we would look at, well, what's the evidence that this thought is completely true? And what's the evidence that it's not true? Okay. And can we come up with an alternative thought, something that's a little more balanced? Like, my mom really gets me upset. Every time I hear her voice, I get really angry. And at the same time, I only have to see her for a little bit. So we look at what the evidence is that you actually are not permanently affected by uh, in the present. Right. So you're trying to teach them how what's triggering them, and in that, realizing that there is a open door that you can get out of eventually. You're not trapped there. Absolutely. And in all of that lowers the intensity of the reaction then? Absolutely. I see. Absolutely. So we want to, um, we want to lower the intensity of the reaction by looking at how we interpret the event or situation and the meaning we give to that, and then really not let these thoughts take over like bullies in our head. Got it. Okay. Can we take a call? Absolutely. All right. Let's take a live caller. We'll go to the phone. I think we have Julie on the phone. Hi, how are you? Hey, Hi, Julie. Julie. Hi. You're on with um, Doctor with uh, Doctor Sophie and Doctor Bolden. She's a CBT expert. Well, my question is: um, after being on antidepressants for a little while and weaning off, but still feeling like I need something, but don't want to go back to the medication, what would you suggest? Because it feels like being in a stupor, kind of. You know, it was great for the intense situations going on at the time and it worked great but now I don't really need it but well have you, you know. talked to your doctor about that I have I think I'm resistant to going back on the medication I get that so Dr. Bolden what do you think because well, absolutely. I'm so glad that you mentioned that Dr. Sophie because first we want to always look at um, medical reasons and always coordinate with with psychiatry in terms of medication and depression or anxiety what I would recommend is contacting a, a cognitive behavioral therapist and talking about your your goals what are the problem areas that you're experiencing right now and then they would do a brief assessment and and start looking at some of the thoughts that you're having that might be causing you uh, challenges And our goal in cognitive behavioral therapy is to find out a little bit about how you're perceiving things in your life and and to see if the way you're perceiving things is helpful and then teach you how to modify those thoughts. So, in other words, see if she still needs the medicine, and if she does, then these are the ways to, whatever is the residual left over after medicine, we can treat it this way. Absolutely. And the research shows, I mean, there have been, CBT is the most researched therapy, Julie, and so uh, the research shows that even after pharmacotherapy, that CBT has the most long-lasting effects afterwards because we really teach you how to be your own therapist. Very neat. So it's a great adjunct to, psych- to medication, and at the same time, we're actually teaching you skills that you can use, you know, the use long-term. after you're on the medication or if you decide not to not to take medication. Yeah, I mean like Julie just said long term. Mhm. Absolutely. Right. And it's best in terms of relapse and you you can actually have booster sessions and 
and everything and just really kind of think of your thoughts and analyze and just very pragmatically think about, is this thought helpful to me right now? Is there a different behavior that I can be doing to change how I'm feeling? Yeah, because it was an intense situation in my life, but I'm sure for a long time coming, there will be residual kind of little yeah. things that come up that I'll need to deal with, and that's why I'd rather kind of know how to cope with it. Yeah, Absolutely. have the tools. And, and what we find, too, Julie, is that what, like each situation, kind of the way that we think or the way we perceive things is the way we look at things in general in our lives. And so there's certain kind of thought patterns that we have. And right. so w- if we look at one situation and work on that one problem, we find that we tend to think similar, in a similar way about other situations in our lives. And so right. once we identify those patterns, that's when we can start to look at modifying those thoughts. So it really applies to all areas of our lives. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Julie, thank you for calling. So, Dr. Bolden, it really is a matter of taking apart that actual thought, feeling, reaction in the moment, understanding it, finding a better solution, and putting some cognitive thought into it so that you really don't have so much emotion in it, and it's a better balance of thought and emotion. Absolutely. Got it. And so you can go back for, you know, boosters, like you said, and... It's just constantly just building on the foundation that you obviously, I guess, teach from the beginning. Absolutely. And that's the whole thing, Dr. Sophie, is we're really partnering with the client, collaborating with them, and really teaching them skills. We don't really position ourselves as the expert, but more as a co-collaborator looking at what's going on, what are these thought patterns, what are these behaviors that people are doing also, and then how they can change that. We just simply point that out. Very good. Now, do you do this individually? Do you in groups, both? I do it both, individually and in groups at and Harper is, and, and also in my private practice. So we, there are protocols for, for group therapy and for individual. It's a very, very pragmatic therapy. And do you find group or individual more effective or does it depend on case by case? I think it depends uh, case by case. Definitely with uh, teenagers, with adolescents, groups are very helpful because of the whole social component and um, feeling validated in a group setting. Very important. With adults, groups are very helpful, particularly if we're looking at CBT for insomnia. Because Ah. the whole group component, what happens with that, Dr. Sophie, is that people, they don't feel as as, um, isolated and unique and alone and they, they can relate to other people having the similar issues and similar thoughts. Which is also part of CBT. It lowers their anxiety around that whole issue because then they can put it into a better perspective. Absolutely. Interesting. So where do we find you? My private practice um, is in Manhattan Beach, and I'm at uh, com. So I can be found there on Psychology Today. And then also I am uh, a psychologist here in the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Clinic at Harbor UCLA. Very good. And so we could find you on your website and down through Harbor's website as well? Yes, absolutely. I appreciate your expertise and your time. Thank you for helping people. And the work you do is tremendous. Thank you so much, Dr. Sophie. Thank you. really appreciate being on the show today and, and talking to you and the callers. Absolutely. Okay. Have a great day. You too. That was interesting. On the phone, I had Dr. Lisa Bolden. She's a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy expert, who explained to me and all of you the difference between CBT and DBT. And CBT is a much more thought, motivated, thinking, cognitive, focused therapy. And DBT is a much more behavioral focused therapy. So one is really focusing on changing the way you think, which then changes the way you respond 
emotionally, and the other is how you behave, changing the way you behave, and therefore changing the way you respond. And all of those things then affecting, in general, mood, anxiety levels, and making life work for you, which is what we were talking about today at the beginning of our podcast with depression and anxiety and mood disorders, because many people don't want to take medicine. Many people, as we heard on one of our callers, has been on medicine and wants to come off, and they just need some tools. And sometimes it's good to start just with building your toolbox and filling it up with things such as CBT and DBT. And sometimes you need to start with medicine to lower your reactions and your anxieties and your symptoms so that when you do sit in front of your therapist to get your CBT and DBT and your tools, you're able to hear it, you're able to learn it, you're able to do it, and then you can get off your medicine. So today we talked about depression and we talked about the non-medical treatments, which were really great. Dr. Judy Ho talked about DBT and we can find Dr. Ho at www.drjudyho.com. And we talked to Dr. Dr. Lisa Bolden about CBT and she can be found at www.drjudyho.com. DrLisaBolden.com, www.DrLisaBolden, B-O-L-D-E-N.com. And I'm Dr. Sophie at 1-855-SOPHIE-NOW or 1-855-767-4966. Please call me during the week 24-7. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you want me to talk about, what kinds of things we have to get our experts to be on about. I want to educate you. I want to get you to a place where you're able to feel safe and comfortable to talk about whatever it is so that I can get you happy, get your family together, and kids can stay safe and live in the families that they were born in so that they can then grow up happy. I want you to follow me on Twitter and Facebook. If you're on there, watch out for me on TV, on HLN, and all those kinds of shows. Again, my book, Side by Side, the Mother-Daughter Revolutionary Conflict book. Come on, you got to get it. Any mother or daughter needs to have it because otherwise you're going to be in conflict. And one of my mothers I was talking to last week said to me, I use your book all the time. I just hit my daughter with it, which I hope she was kidding, but it was pretty funny. Again, we'll be uh, here next week. And I will be tweeting about what we're talking about. Please visit iTunes to download the full version of Andy Grammer's Keep Your Head Up. And please don't forget to sweep. But you got to keep your head up. Oh, and you can let your head down. Hey, you got to keep your head up. Oh, and you can let your head down.